I've heard a lot of modern Western Christians complain about persecution. But honestly, I still tend to think that we live in the freest society in the history of the world. Now, that doesn't mean that popular culture doesn't dislike biblical Christianity, but that's always been the case. Today on The Voice of Prophecy, we're going to look at a time when persecution was very real. And then we'll look at what Jesus said to those persecuted believers. Welcome to another edition of The Voice of Prophecy, where today we're going to continue our series on the book of Revelation. And right now we're partway into chapter 2 and we're looking at Christ's message to the believers in Smyrna. Now, if you're just joining us, if you haven't been following along, then what you might want to do is visit the website vop.com and listen to the previous episodes. It'll help you understand. What we're doing is reading the entire book of Revelation, essentially verse by verse. And as you can imagine, that's a pretty big project. So we're doing it in bite-sized pieces in kind of an on-again, off-again fashion. And right now we're looking at the seven messages Jesus gave to the seven churches of Asia Minor. You've got Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, those were not the only churches in Asia Minor, not even by a long shot, but they were seven churches that were located along a key road in that Roman province, a road that was kind of shaped like an upside-down U or a horseshoe. On the bottom left of the horseshoe, if you can imagine it, you've got the city of Ephesus, and then you make your way north to Smyrna and Pergamos, and eventually you head east and downward again until you end in Laodicea. It's an upside-down horseshoe. Now, in all likelihood, when John wrote the book of Revelation, it was first read out loud to the congregation in Ephesus, and then it was sent along the road to the next of the seven churches, and it went to all of them in the order that they're listed. But you'll notice that there are several key churches that were there in the first century in that same province, and they're not on the list. For example, there was a thriving church in the city of Colossae, which is the congregation Paul wrote to in his letter to the Colossians. There's no question those were key players in the development of first century Christianity, but they're not in the list of seven churches. This is just one more reason that students of Bible prophecy have come to the conclusion that the seven churches represent more than just literal churches from the first century. Anytime you have seven of something in Bible prophecy, it's a pretty strong indicator that the items in the list have a deeper symbolic meaning. Seven is the number of completeness and perfection. It's considered to be God's number, the number of wholeness. So, the seven churches point to a complete set of something, and Bible students have long recognized that they represent the entire span of Christian history, all the way from the first century church down to the second coming of Christ. So while these letters addressed very real issues in very real churches 2,000 years ago, they were also prophetic, and they pointed forward to different phases the Christian church would pass through as it waited for Christ to return. So last time we met, we looked at the message to the believers in Ephesus, which also turned out to be a description of Christianity right back at the starting line. It was describing the first century church. 
Now we're going to look at God's message to Smyrna, which begins in Revelation 2 and verse 8. So if you have your Bible handy, go ahead and open it there to the book of Revelation, Revelation 2 verse 8, and let's get started. Here's what it says. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. Now, you'll remember, in every one of these letters, Jesus starts out by identifying himself with some of the symbols used in Revelation chapter 1. To the church in Ephesus, he was the one who walks among the candlesticks. And to the church in Smyrna, he's the one who died and came back to life. The resurrection of Christ was particularly meaningful to the Christians who lived in the second phase of Christian history because the wrath of the Roman Empire started to turn against them. This is the phase of history that people are talking about when they mention Christians being thrown to the lions. At first, the Roman Empire really had no problem with Christianity. They just thought of it as another Jewish sect. And the Jewish nation had some special protections under the Roman Empire. They were exempt from having to recognize the Roman emperor as a god because of the assistance they once gave to Julius Caesar. While other nations were, on more than one occasion, required to offer a pinch of incense to the Caesar, an act of worship, the Jews had an exception. They only had to promise to pray for the emperor. So, in the beginning, when the Christian church was largely a movement centered in Jerusalem and organized around the teachings of a Jewish founder, the Romans didn't really make a difference. They didn't distinguish them from the Jews. But later on, especially as the animosity between Jews and Christians grew, the Romans did make a distinction, and the Christians didn't have the same exemption. They were not a national state religion like the Jews. Now they were viewed as just a religious sect, and they were perceived as a threat, a possible threat, to the unity of the whole empire. This is a period of history that really begins around the end of the first century and gets worse and worse until it culminates with a specific and brutal 10-year persecution of Christians under the emperor Diocletian. Now, that happened at the beginning of the 4th century. So, really, the time period represented by the letter to Smyrna is from about the end of the 1st century to the beginning of the 4th. If you were a Christian during that period of history, you might pay for it with your life. So, Jesus approaches this group of believers by clearly identifying with them. I understand persecution, he said, because I'm the one who went to a Roman cross. But I came back from the grave, so don't worry about what's going to happen. I know this isn't easy, but at the end of the road, there will be a crown waiting for you. Just take a look down at verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, in Bible prophecy, a day is often used to represent a year. That's why Bible scholars see the 490 days of Daniel chapter 9 as 490 literal years. Generally speaking, in prophecy, it's a day representing a year. So, when Jesus says there will be a tribulation that lasts for 10 days, it actually fits exactly with the 10 years of harsh persecution under Diocletian. Diocletian essentially outlawed Christianity in 303 AD, and he kept it up until Constantine reversed the policy of persecuting Christians with the Edict of Milan in 313, exactly 10 years. It was the worst period of Christian persecution in all of history, and it was predicted in Revelation more than 200 years before it happened. 
Be faithful until death, Jesus says, and I will give you the crown of life. And do I know that I can give you a crown? How do I know that I can reward you? Well, the whole universe is mine, Jesus is saying. I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who died on a Roman cross, and the grave couldn't hold me, and I'm alive. So trust me with your future. I know what you're facing, and I promise you, it will be worth it. You know, that's a far cry from the prosperity gospel you hear so much from modern-day Christians. There is no promise here. Look at it. There's no promise that Christians will be rich or that life will be smooth. Instead, it virtually guarantees that the world will reject genuine biblical Christianity. And a passage like this one, the letter to Smyrna, should set off alarm bells for people who have been taught that Christianity is a guaranteed ticket to Easy Street. That's just not true. We have 2,000 years of faithful Christians who did not have a ticket to Easy Street. Now, I'm up against a break, so I'm going to have to defer to the break. But when I come back, we'll back up and look at verse 9. So keep your Bible open here to Revelation 2. I'm coming right back. Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Do you feel as if you have more questions than answers in your life? Are you searching for answers to some of life's biggest questions? Well, the Discover Bible Guides can help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or call us at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. And we are back from our break, so I hope you have your Bible open to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9. Here's what it says. We're partway through this letter to Smyrna. Verse 9, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, here's what you need to remember. This whole letter to Smyrna is written in the context of fierce persecution. This is describing that period of history after the Romans caught on that Christians were not really Jews, and they started to apply pressure on the Christian church. In fact, the name Smyrna is a derivative of the word myrrh, a sweet-smelling perfume, and it was very valuable. You might remember the wise men who came to visit Jesus at his birth. They brought three valuable gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, here's the thing about myrrh. Not only was it sweet-smelling, but it was also one of the key spices ancient people used to embalm the dead. So, it fits right in with the whole motif of dying for your faith. But the only way you could get myrrh as a perfume was to crush a myrrh plant. And the juice that ran out of the plant was very bitter to the taste, like persecution is very bitter. But at the same time, it smells amazing. What God is describing is a church that gets crushed by opposition, but because of their faithfulness in the midst of persecution, they are like a sweet-smelling perfume. Their love for God isn't spurious. They are not God's fair-weather friends. They stand tall in the face of everything and anything the devil throws at them. You know, there's an interesting passage in Psalm 45 that clearly points forward to Jesus Christ. And we know it points to Jesus because the book of Hebrews quotes it when it describes him. Listen to what it says. This is Psalm 45, verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. 
Now, now let me pause for a moment, because if you happen to be one of those people who doubts the Bible teaches the divinity of Christ, you might want to go back and compare this psalm with the first chapter of the book of Hebrews. There is no doubt the psalm is talking about God, and there's no doubt in Hebrews chapter 1 that the New Testament is recognizing Jesus in this same passage, Jesus as God. All right, that was kind of a sidebar, so let's, let's continue in verse 7. You love righteousness. This is Psalm 45. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. All your garments are scented with myrrh. According to the psalm, myrrh is the perfume of Jesus. Part of his beauty is the fact that he surrendered his own life to the grave for you. And another part of his beauty can be found in all those people who recognize the love of Christ. They have the mind of Christ in them, and they are faithful, even to the point of death. Smyrna is the church of myrrh. It's the church of people who are crushed for the sake of the gospel, but they don't fear death because the captain of their salvation has already gone through the grave, and he has come out the other side very much alive. All right, I digress a little bit, but it's kind of an interesting point. Let's go back now to Revelation 2, verse 9. Here's what Jesus says. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, this is kind of a problematic verse for some people because it talks about people who claim to be Jews but are actually members of the synagogue of Satan. And the reason that has proven problematic is because some people see this verse as very anti-Semitic. They look at it as an attempt by Christians to belittle Jews. But honestly, that's a gross misunderstanding of what this is actually saying. That's a 21st century reading. Never forget Jesus himself was Jewish. So were all the disciples. John the Revelator, the man who wrote this book, he was Jewish. We have to understand that Christians understood themselves to be a continuation of the promises to Israel. In fact, Paul writes in Romans chapter 11 that Gentile Christians were being grafted into the people of Israel. Romans chapter 2 describes all believers as spiritual Jews. And Galatians chapter 3 says that all believers are the seed of Abraham. So it's silly to say that this is racism. It's just not. There was growing tension between the Jews who identified with Jesus and the Jews who did not. And that tension tended to grow as Gentiles were added to the church. And there did come a point when the synagogues actually implemented prayers that Christians could not recite in good faith because the wording belittled Jesus. It was a not-so-subtle way of rooting Christian believers out from synagogues. So, yes, there was tension, but everybody was Jewish for the most part, so it wasn't racist. Every time we approach Scripture, we have to be careful that we don't bring 21st century sensitivities to the text, not when this was written back in the 1st century. Now, take a look at what it actually says. It talks about people who claim to be Jews. And to second century Christians, that would mean people who claim to be the seed of Abraham. In other words, these are people claiming to be Christians. But their actions tell a different story. This is talking about hypocrisy. It's talking about duplicity. 
Now, to be sure, we do have historical records of Jewish synagogues in Smyrna that went out of their way to distance themselves from this new sect of Christians, and some of them even turned them into the authorities. You might have heard of Polycarp, a disciple of John's who was burned at the stake for refusing to denounce Christ. He was actually from the city of Smyrna, and historical records indicate that members of the synagogue might have turned him in. So, historically speaking, it was true. It did happen. Jews did persecute Christians. But then again, Christians also persecuted Jews in Europe throughout the Middle Ages. It was the official organized church that organized the deportation of Jews from Spain during the 1400s. So yeah, it did happen, and it runs both ways, and it doesn't do us any good to deny history. But the problem here in Revelation 2 verse 9 runs a lot deeper than just the tension between Jews and Christians in the second century. If you read your way all the way through the New Testament, you'll notice that a lot of the New Testament is dedicated to dealing with the problem of false teachers inside the Christian church. Often, after an apostle left town, or even if they were still there, these detractors would move into town and begin teaching falsehood. Often, that falsehood was a mix of Christian theology and Gnosticism, which was a form of ancient pagan philosophy. That's why Paul had to preach the kinds of sermons you read in Acts chapter 20. Listen to this. It says in verse 29, this is Paul preaching. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Verse 30, also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. It's important to remember that the Christian church was an explosive phenomenon in the first century. People could not wait to tell the world about Jesus. And of course, a defeated devil hated their enthusiasm. In Revelation 12, and, and we'll come to that in another show, but in Revelation 12, the devil can't touch Jesus after he goes back to heaven, so he turns his wrath against the church. And he uses two primary tools. He uses persecution, and he uses deception. Now, those have always been the devil's tools. If he can't lie to you, if you're not going to fall for deception, maybe he can scare you or force you to toe the line. All through history, it's been one or the other. It's either lies or deception. In Revelation 13, you get to see the devil's end game. First, he sets up a false religion based on lies, and then he threatens people with death if they don't comply. It's a game he's been playing since the beginning of time, and the early church knew the game well. On the one hand, they had the Roman Empire breathing down their necks with persecution. And on the other hand, there were these false teachers moving into the church and trying to thwart the gospel. It was a double-edged sword. And Jesus tells the church he knows what they're facing. I know your works, he says, and I know your tribulation. And honestly, there's nobody more qualified to say those words than Jesus, because he endured the same things during his ministry. So, now I'm up against another break, but I want you to hang in there because when we come back, we're going to finish this message from Jesus to the persecuted church. Hang in there. I'll be right back. Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Do you feel as if you have more questions than answers in your life? Like, where is God when people suffer? Or can I find real happiness? And is there any hope for our chaotic world? Are you searching for answers to these and other of life's biggest questions? Well, the Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for. 
Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. You can choose to study in the format that's most convenient for you. You may either do the lessons completely online or have them mailed right to your home. Both options are completely free of charge. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. Okay, we are back from the break, and you are listening to The Voice of Prophecy. Today we're reading our way through God's letter to the Church of Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2. And we've just come down to verse 10, so let's read that. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. You know, that's got to be one of the most endearing things about Jesus. Go all the way through the gospel sometime. Read your way right through them and count how often Jesus says, fear not. Hey, look, there's, there's no question the human race is in really big trouble because we've turned our backs on God. But through all the pain, through all the noise in this world, through all of the anxiety, the voice of God's Son keeps saying, fear not. I've got a plan. I can save you. You don't have to die in your sins. Jesus in John 14, verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. God says again and again and again that you can trust him. He says, I've got the future all mapped out. I'm the first and the last, and I'm the one who has actually come back from the dead. What do you have to fear? Even if everything in this world falls apart, I still have you. I'm still watching your back. You have nothing to fear. Okay, back to Revelation 2, verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which you were about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation. How long? Ten days. There's that reference to the ten-year persecution of Diocletian, a year for a day. Be faithful until death, he finishes, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, I know I've already said it, but let me underline this one more time. The Bible does not promise a trouble-free life. In fact, it doesn't even guarantee that you won't die for your faith. And just because ISIS lines up a bunch of Christians on the beach and beheads them, that doesn't mean that somehow God dropped the ball. It doesn't mean that he forgot his believers. It doesn't mean that those believers were God-forsaken any more than the original disciples. I mean, never forget this. Of all the disciples, of all of them, only John died of natural causes. All the rest of them died for their faith. So today, when you hear people preaching that God wants everybody to be famous and rich and good-looking, you got to run the other way. I mean, it's true, some people do get all those things, and some of the Bible's most notable characters were rich, but that is not the essence of the gospel. That is not what it means to follow Christ. The Bible says we have to have the mind of Christ, who completely emptied himself for our sake. Go and read the 11th chapter of Hebrews. Read it carefully. It's not a record of the lifestyles of the rich and famous. Read it. It's a record of heroes of the faith. Each of them gave up something in order to follow Jesus, and they don't get the reward until the second coming. Christianity, biblical Christianity, is not about getting a crown in this world. We must never forget that Jesus actually refused an earthly crown. Christianity is about the crown that's coming. And even then, the Bible says the elders in heaven take off their crowns and toss them at the feet of God. 
You and I have access to the Bible because early Christians refused to give up. You and I know the story of Jesus because these people were faithful, even if it meant their death. You and I can be counted as children of God because these people kept the gospel message alive even when the whole world turned against them. And you and I as Christians owe the next generation nothing less. Now, I know that we're tempted to think that Christians face persecution here in North America. I hear it all the time. And it is true, popular culture has started to turn against Christianity. But honestly, there have only ever been a few short decades over the last 2,000 years when popular culture wasn't opposed to the philosophy of the Bible. We just happen to have come out of one of those periods after the middle of the 20th century. We've just had an easy go of it. But let's be honest, for the moment, you and I right now are absolutely free. We're free to share our faith. We are free to worship according to the dictates of conscience. We're not really being persecuted. But the moment is coming when real persecution will come back. That much is absolutely clear in Bible prophecy. And so the promise made here to Smyrna will also be claimed by last-day Christians. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Honestly, what, what do we have to fear? Christians follow a risen Savior who has already defeated the grave. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's verse 11. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The first death? Well, we're all going to face that if Jesus doesn't come in our lifetimes. Nobody misses the first death, except for rare exceptions like Enoch or Elijah. But for the rest of us, if Jesus doesn't come, we will die. The graveyard's full of people who really didn't think it would happen, and it did. You and I are going to die. That's the first death. But the Bible describes a second death over in Revelation 20, a death that nobody ever comes back from. There will be no further resurrection after that, because the second death is the fate of people whose names are not found in the Lamb's Book of Life. They ultimately rejected the cross of Christ. The call of the gospel seemed too difficult for them. They didn't want the kingdom of heaven. So God ultimately doesn't force them in. But those who overcome, those who cling stubbornly to Jesus, he says, I will give you the crown of life. I mean, just imagine that. You and I, at our best, are wretched sinners. You and I are the reason Jesus had to die. And still, he wants to give us a crown. And one day soon, the eastern sky will light up with the glory of the risen Jesus, and you and I will step into his kingdom forever. You know something? At that moment, no matter what we've lived through, no matter what we've endured, I'm guessing as we walk into God's kingdom, it's going to seem like it was a real bargain. As one writer puts it, when we get there, the hardship will fade into the past and we'll declare, heaven is cheap enough. I'm Sean Boonstra, and you've been listening to The Voice of Prophecy. Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Well, just like Sean, I can remember my early readings of the book of Revelation. I'll admit, my reading created more curiosity and questions than it did answers. The language of the book can be overwhelming without a guide, and so I'm glad you've joined us as we begin to study together through the book of Revelation. It's a message of hope from our Savior Jesus and a promise of His soon return. 
Well, if you have a lot of questions and curiosity about the Bible like I did, then I know where you can begin to find answers. The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at our toll-free number, 888-456-7933, for your free Discover Bible Guides. The 26 Discover Guides cover a whole range of subjects, including the ones we've been talking about today. Guide number 12 is one of my favorites. It shares the message of Scripture that we have an ever-present Savior. And in guide number 10, discover the answer to a vital question. How soon will Jesus return? Study online at our website, BibleStudies.com, or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There is never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. And while you're online, be sure to visit us at VOP.com. At VOP.com, you'll find audio archives of this program, the latest ministry news, and resources to help you dig deeply into God's Word. And did you know that you can listen to this program right from your smartphone or your tablet? Well, just search for Voice of Prophecy in your favorite app store and download the free app. So give us a call at 888-456-7933 or visit us online to begin your journey to discover answers to life's deepest questions.